The Tailor's Guild is a work of fiction. Like a good story and a good suit, you can put it on as much as you like and it becomes more familiar each time. Content warnings are available in the show notes. If you have a specific trigger, let us know and we'll begin warning for it. Now, settle in, feel our comfortable coat on your shoulders, and enjoy the show. A Plutocratic Elite a forgotten working class, machines powered by magic, fine suits, and solidarity. This is the Tailor's Guild. Upon the writing of my memoir, it became clear to me that interest in my tale exceeded knowledge of the history of the continent of Gable, where I have lived all my life, and where the events of the coming narrative take place. So it seems prudent to provide a brief summary of Gable's history and lore up until the point in time when our story begins. If you wish to simply proceed with the tale as it is told, everything here will be adequately explained in the narrative. But if you wish to have a base of context for the world of the Tailor's Guild as you go in, this is for you. Consider it, also, a valuable reference for any details that might slip your mind between installments. Rather than poring over several old episodes and trying to locate the piece of information you are trying to remember, this one will always be here. I do hope you enjoy these words, as I hope you enjoy the tale to come. Part 1 the Endless Forest. For most of our history, the continent of Gable was a relatively peaceful, if occasionally frightening, place. The Endless Forest, a massive edifice of ancient trees, choked every corner of land. In the shadows of these historic branches crouched the arcane beasts, monsters who stalked the forest for reasons unknown. They were rarely seen, and even then only a flash of dark green fur and entirely too many bright, orange eyes. The only places the endless forest did not cover were the Sharpwater Sea to the south and the Blue Stone Mountains to the west, as well as countless small clearings scattered seemingly at random across the continent. In these small clearings, villages sprung up. They were quiet, tiny affairs, groups of people erecting wooden houses and smithies and planting crops, treating the endless forest with a healthy, respectful fear. On occasion, someone who strayed too far would be fed upon by the arcane beasts, their desiccated corpse discovered weeks later, or never again. Despite these horrors, people did forge roads and pathways through the wilderness, connecting isolated hamlets into a fragile network. 
Some of these hamlets grew to become cosmopolitan city-states. To the far west, over the Blue Stone Mountains, was Perital, an industrious and deeply religious community following their twin gods, the sun and the moon. To the far east, clustered around the sundered lakes, was Ided, a sophisticated group of storytellers, explorers, and chefs. To the far south lay Aurelios, an island nation protected by the Sharpwater Sea, filled to bursting with edicts, laws, and spirited argumentation. Many of the small villages in the center of the continent remained isolated, connected only by their meager roads and separated by vast swaths of threatening forest. Life continued in this manner for years upon years, and quite likely the rapacious predations of the new groups of entrepreneurs and industrialists would have died out, like a match's flame at the end of its stick. Were it not for the discovery of Quorum. Part 2. Quorum. In the year 752 of the Common Calendar, as the story goes, a brave watchman from the little coastal town of Dawnshield, by the name of Wilhelm Tracy, roused a group of his fellows to pursue an arcane beast who had taken a small child. The town watch tracked the beast to its lair, slew it, and returned home, not just with the rescued child, but with a positively earth-shattering discovery. A viscous orange substance that glowed with the light of a million forest eyes lay pooled in the arcane beast's lair. Wilhelm Tracy brought it back to the town of Donshield and began to work with it. Soon it became clear that this orange substance, now known as Quorum, held incredible eldritch power that could be channeled to all manner of uses, which Tracy realized he could use to create inventions to make life better for the people of those isolated central villages. This story is very likely apocryphal and almost certainly fabricated to portray Wilhelm Tracy as a hero of the common man, not the tyrannical baron of industry he truly was. But what is undoubtedly true is that the continent of Gable changed overnight. Forest tracks made for ox carts were replaced with gleaming rail lines. Wooden houses and cobblestone streets were forgotten, and in their place rose tenements of brick and well-lit paved avenues. In Dawnshield, with more open land than some other towns by virtue of its coastal location, the first few factories emerged, their tall stacks pouring forth the oily black smoke, still flecked with defiant orange, that came from Quorum Power. Under this banner of industry, Wilhelm Tracy welded the isolated villages into a single, massive nation-state, which he named, in a paroxysm of modesty, United Tracia. Dawnshield, the seat of his power, was transformed from a small village by the sea into a citadel of wealth and control, and renamed New Dawn City. Countless new corporations sprung up, all purporting to use Quorum to solve some minor problem, major oversight, or social ill. Quickly, however, Tracy and his cohort of other business owners burned through the tiny reserves of Quorum they could find by excavating the lairs of the arcane beasts. But just as all this commercial, industrial, capitalist progress was jeopardized, a new vein was found. Far, far to the north, beneath the snow-capped peaks of the edge of the world, subterranean lakes of Quorum were unearthed by miners. A rail line to the north was built in no time at all, and the industrialization of United Tracia began 
in earnest. The year was 796. Part 3. The Woodland War The supply of quorum clawed from the far north quickly outstripped the few factories' ability to create new machines and devices. In addition, quorum mining was brutally dangerous. Villagers had long avoided the endless forest, and for good reason. But seeking quorum in the early days had required plunging into those ancient trees to find and raise the dens of arcane beasts. Attacks were frequent, and deaths common and grisly. The far north was no better. Beasts the like of which no villager could have imagined plagued the dig sites and assaulted the frequent train shipments of quorum. As the endless forest was invaded, arcane beasts plagued the villages more and more. These problems, a lack of land and frequent reprisals from the endless forest, had in President Tracy's mind a simple and elegant solution. War. And so the Woodland War began. Endless soldiers, conscripts from the villages combined with legions of corporate security forces, stepped into the towering, walking military marchers and did battle against the endless forest. The Woodland War raged from the foothills of the Bluestone Mountains all the way to the icy crags of the far north. They raised the trees indiscriminately, clearing vast open plains where the arcane beasts withered and died, but where hundreds upon hundreds of factories could grow and produce more and more and more. Arcane beasts, monsters, of greater and more terrible power made themselves known and were slain by the mechanical might of United Tracia. The Woodland War lasted five years, and when it ended in the year 825, the land was transformed. United Tracia had become the first nation-state, and the lands under its dominion stretched leagues farther than the wildest dreams of any of the city-states. Wilhelm Tracy did not live to see the end of the war. He was an old man when it started, and even extravagant wealth and selfishness cannot stave off the end forever. When a very powerful man dies, his collected treasures often become replacements for any shred of ethical conduct or decency. His hoard is pointed to as evidence of his greatness, and the cruelty required to amass that wealth is forgotten or shamed as speaking ill of the dead. United Tracia held no gods. Wilhelm Tracy, or the flawed memory of him, became their first. And as the robber barons he consorted with died off, happy and self-assured and consequence-free, the nation gained a pantheon. As time moved on, people came from other villages, from other city-states, seeking a fortune in new lands that United Tracia never intended to provide. Its land belonged not to the endless forest and arcane beasts, nor even to the common people, who had senselessly fought and died to claim scraps of the better life that they did not know they did not need. United Tracia was the land of the wealthy, and they had no interest in giving up their power. Our story begins in the year 831, six years after the end of the Woodland War, but just at the beginning of the monumental events that would follow. The Woodland War, a short-sighted and greedy demand for more money and resources than any person could need, is not worth the words it would take to explore it. But what came next? A union of workers, alienated from their labor, their communities, and even themselves, 
beginning to see the horror inflicted upon them and upon the land, that is a story worth telling. I think that's all for now. Yours sincerely, The Storyteller. The Tailor's Guild, Season 1, Episode 0, The Continent of Gable, was written by Jules Blymore, produced by Jules Blymore, starring Jules Blymore as the storyteller. Original music by Colin Tidwell, with Thomas Tidwell Consulting. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Send us a message at thetailorsguildcast at gmail.com or on Twitter and Tumblr at The Tailor's Guild. New episodes on the 7th and 21st. Thank you for listening. Join a union.